Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Jordan Bohannon is a redshirt senior point guard on the top five ranked University of Iowa men's basketball team, school record holder in three-pointers made, and the sixth player in school history with more than 1,000 points and 500 assists. He is also, and I, I really, I can't emphasize this enough, he is also the co-host of The Standpoint podcast, which everyone needs to check out. It's really terrific work. Uh, it's an opportunity to, to hear a college athlete talking freely, openly about um, the experience of, of working in this um, deeply exploitative sphere. So you really have to check out Jordan's podcast. And Jordan, it is such a pleasure for us to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Awesome. Well, here, let me just start off by saying um, this is a re- it's a weird time to have you in part because I mean, it's just it's the college basketball season. And that means it's unbelievably weird. Um, but it's not just that the Big Ten is going through some really weird things right now, which I'm sure you're, you're far more aware of than we are. But, um, you know, I just particularly uh, with issues with the University of Michigan that have come up this past week that I want to kind of start by highlighting for listeners just to give them a sense of, you know, what Jordan has to live through at Iowa. Iowa is a fellow Big Ten school, as is Michigan. First, earlier this week, we saw um, Michigan had a game against Purdue on Friday night. Michigan men's basketball. They had a game against Purdue at Purdue. And it turned out that a Purdue player turned up a positive on um, what amounted to, I suppose, something like Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Became symptomatic on Wednesday morning, something like that. The team played Michigan on Friday, right? So the team played, but they had a game on Tuesday night. They actually played, I think it was Ohio State on Tuesday night. And then they... (laughs) They still played Michigan on Friday, which although they quarantined the player in question, um, that seems absolutely wild to me. Based on everything we know about the virus, there's absolutely no way they could ensure that all those players who were not yet symptomatic and were still currently testing negative were not going to ultimately test positive. So that was a wild choice that the league made and the universities made to allow that. But then that was dwarfed in significance by the fact that the University of Michigan has now shut down their entire athletic department for two weeks. Because uh, it turns out that the new UK variant of the virus um, came back with, a, with an athlete over the winter holidays, over the, yeah, uh, some, who returned in January. And um, what I've heard uh, is that, like, there is a deep terror in that athletic department because of the astonishing speed at which athletes tested positive for the new variant. And we know that 22 campus athletic workers in that department tested positive in one week. Um, And my understanding was that that happened fast. And that was scary to the people at the governmental level in the state of Michigan. And it was frightening to the university itself. And so although no revenue sport athletes um, were apparently among those positives, they shut everything down. Um, And I I wanted to kind of talk through all that just to give people a sense of like, that's, that's regular life for college athletes this season. That's the world that Jordan 
is operating in. Um, so to get now to, to Jordan's experience more particularly, I want to say that you first got on my radar as a critic of the way athletes have been treated during the pandemic as far back as the summer, Jordan did. Um, so he's been, he's been outspoken about this since the summer, which is really impressive. Um, and we have been very critical based on our discussions with primarily football players about a number of elements of the experience of athletes this year. So I'd love it if we could just start, Jordan, if you could walk us through what, you, what your experience has been in terms of the expectations that have been placed on you since the start of the school year. When did you first have to report to campus? Have you been able to return home? And honestly, like the thing I'm always most interested in, what is your day-to-day -day life in terms of things like isolation, surveillance, and just honestly, like your experience yeah for sure it's been a very chaotic past five to six months obviously for most of the nation and world just for um, COVID terms but for college athletes it's been quite quite the journey for myself and you know even our team just to getting through this year and as you touched on Michigan shutting down and um all the college basketball experts are more worried about, you know, seven weeks from now, there's a selection Sunday and we just had another team go on pause for two weeks. So um, touching on just that aspect, it's been, you know, just interesting, just trying to get ready day by day. But um, back in the summer, we got on campus around um, June and we, we, we are usually there from, um, June to all the way April, pretty much. We really don't have much of a break. They say it's an off season, but it's not really an off season in the summer. Um, so this this summer we were able they they deemed it as voluntary workouts, and they try to do everything they can. Um, the NCAA did to say that it was voluntary for athletes to be there, and if they weren't, there wasn't going to be any consequences. Um, but looking at more of the rational thought process of that, if you think about a college athlete, a lot of these kids in the NCAA pretty much are relying on, you know, their athleticism or their 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 skill or talent to, you know, get them to that next level. And for them to think about not going to a practice this summer or not being there on campus, it realized I think a lot of them, you know, from my from my perspective and my experiences of talking to them um, throughout the country of all these players, they they were worried about further consequences happening if they weren't going to show up for practice. That you know, playing time was going to be um, damaged uh, potentially in the in the upcoming season. So I think that was the main concern for a lot of athletes. For you know. If they didn't feel safe, they still felt like they had to go just because of the that um, rationale behind that. And um, I think from you know the hundreds of athletes I've talked to, that was the majority of the agreement amongst them. But um, myself, I actually did not even. I went, I went probably for a week or two for the summer for workouts, but I was pretty much distanced from the team this entire summer. We were put on quarantine twice as a basketball team in the summer and had to be shut down for 14 days. So we, I think we have had a total of 12 of the 16, 17 guys that have gotten COVID since, since June. Um, we haven't had any recent outbreaks, but it's definitely been a chaotic journey for us to even get through a season and trying to follow all these protocols that are occurring. Do you wonder how many how many people did you say? Sorry, George, how many people did you say on your on your team had got positives? 
I do not know the exact number, but I do know it's above 10. I want to say around 12. Your team has what? I mean, do you have more than 15 players? Uh, 16, I believe. Wow. 16. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to underline that point. One of the things you mentioned is, and like this has been a common thing that we as like sort of critics in the college football world have run into this, this question that like athletes want to play. They don't care about the risks, but from what you're saying, it seems to be like the most or the majority of players you're talking to did have concerns about playing and did feel sort of coerced or forced into playing. Would you say that that's, that's a true statement? Oh, for sure. And I think, I mean, from my, 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 my experience is I wanted to, I returned this last year to play and I, I wanted to play basketball, even going through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to make that known, but also there was a lot of unknowns when I was myself going through the process, you know, deciding to come back and, you know, COVID hitting and everything shutting down in the entire country. So there are so many unknowns and no, no one really knew how to handle it. The NCAA definitely didn't know there's any, there's zero leadership whatsoever this entire summer on how teams should you know return back and you know granted the university of iowa did have um protocols and testing right from the gate so i do applaud the university of iowa for doing that however there was still so much unknown about the virus back in june and there were so many athletes that came back on campus and um it was definitely a disaster yeah yeah no i i could i could only imagine especially like in the summer considering like we know so much more now about the virus like things do make a little bit more sense like now but in the summer we knew nothing like we knew very little about not only like the short-term effects but also some of the long-term effects that we're sort of hearing um now one of the things that um we've been kind of particularly critical of on this pod um, has been and and in our writings has been what we sort of call the the carceral like dimensions of the sort of collegiate athlete experience. Um, last week or a couple weeks ago, we wrote in the Daily Beast in the context of college football, and I'm quoting here: "Nearly every enjoyable aspect of life as a campus athletic worker was stripped away, leaving only unvarnished labor, confinement, and surveillance." Now, that is a comment about um, the college football experience, but we're interested to get your experience from, um, the, uh, uh, from the basketball perspective. Um, would you agree with that appraisal of this sort of carceral prison-like um, sort of experience? Oh, 100%. And when you talk about surveillance, I mean, it's pretty much what it is right now. We, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my, my life is I wake up, I get tested in the morning, um, sometimes we have a couple hours between practice. I go home for a little bit and I go right back to practice and I'm at, you know, the arena for three to four to five hours a day. I get done with practice and I come back home and, you know, I sleep and I wake up and do the same thing the next day. It's, it's the same, same schedule and we're isolated from the public and, um, we're doing all these things. We're being stripped away of all these things just so universities and, um, and in the end, the NCA making all the money with the NCA tournament at the end of the season, just for them to make all the all this amount of revenue for 
um, you know, for just for a few, feels like a few <laughs> amount of people in the NCAA. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it, it's frustrating from my end because as soon as I started working that with the NCPA, which is the National Collegiate Player Association, and Ramogi Huma, who runs it, has done a phenomenal job, and he's a big reason why uh, I know the legislation with Senator Booker was mm-hmm. um, put into place, and hopefully will be passed in the next couple of months. Um, but all these bills that are being, you know, bought, brought to each of these states, it's it's been him pretty much that's been behind it, and he got me involved in the summer. And that, which was a big reason why I started speaking out. And we actually met with one of the senators from Iowa this past month and kind of helped write the bill for, for the state, for the state of Iowa. And I, it's sounding like this, there's a lot of, um, a lot of hope that it will pass in the, in the state of Iowa, this, this upcoming, you know, next couple of months. So I think all that work that I did in the summer with Ramoki has definitely opened my eyes of, you know, all the complications that have occurred um, throughout the NCA with these athletes, because they do take advantage of us. And especially right now with COVID, I, that's why, that's what has opened my eyes even more. Cause think about what has happened with COVID and the college athletes. If people are more understanding of, you know, how restrictive we are. And even now, I think it shows the broadened view of, you know, how much exploitation has occurred in the past, you know, several decades. Could you, could you walk us through kind of the pre COVID, um, sort of surveillance that would, that your kind of daily lives would go through compared to like new intrusions and new forms of surveillance that are, um, that you sort of are, are, um, aware of, uh, in COVID times, yeah. And just I mean, what specifically? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say just to add to what Derek was saying, to, 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 because like I'm certainly familiar um, at Duke, for instance, and Derek had a similar things when he worked at South Carolina. You know, like there, there's clearly an effort to monitor when athletes are going to class, especially the revenue sport athletes, right? Like people are keeping tabs. I've heard of other other institutions. There's like camera situations, right? And this was all, this is what Derek's talking about. This is all pre-COVID stuff, right? Like surveillance is part of the life of a college athlete. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your, like Derek, I'm curious about your experience there. Yeah, so it's, I know several circumstances from, you know, previous teammates I've had, you know, I've, <laughs> couple stories of just, you know, managers on the college basketball team, on our college basketball team, you know, following some of the players around to make sure we're going to classes. And, you know, it's almost like we're being babysat and being surveilled. There's surveillance on us 24-7, and we're always in the kind of the limelight, I guess you could say, of, you know, if we do something wrong, it's it's magnified, and that's kind of the thing we signed up for as being college athletes. But um, it it's it's weird because you know the coaches are making millions and we're sitting here on our on our ass just working without any compensation and it kind of gives a different vibe to it because um, that's why I'm saying it's kind of like being babysat. There's nothing really being getting out gotten out of it. Just just play and you know move on. That's pretty much what the mindset has been for years for college athletes. And what what's happening? What's happening now? Like what? Are, are you being monitored in terms of like you are being watched uh, in your dorms, like to make sure that you're not co-mingling with your teammates or with other people? Or are you like being followed around town or like what sorts of things are, are happening um, or that you've heard of from other um, athletes? 
Well, we made a rule as a team just because we knew the significance of, you know, the talent we had on our team that we were going to make sacrifices. And if anyone was seen out that, uh, you know, downtown or, you know, at a bar or at a party or um, somewhere without a mask and kind of have the potential to damage our team and create an outbreak that, you know, that we'd have to have them sit out for two weeks and, you know, stay away from all the teammates on our, on our team. So, um, I think to the extent that was good for us as players to come forward and do that. It also showed the power that we have as players that we have the chance to do that because yeah. the players are the ones that should be making those decisions and not the coaches and administrators. But um, the, I think just the everyday testing and um, kind of knowing that there's a bigger things at stake than, you know, we can't go and see a friend or we can't even go see our family um and knowing that you know if we come back that it, the whole thing would be shut down is pretty much the person's fault that you know they went to go see their mom or dad and they ended up contracting COVID so uh it's it's a uh, like I referred to earlier it's, it's definitely a weird journey we're on right now mm-hmm. so I'm gonna ask a question that kind of goes back to something that you were talking about before was sort of what circumstances were like this summer and sort of how new the virus still was and how there were there were so many unknowns And so I'm curious, you know, what was sort of the difference between when you and like other college athletic workers were on campus over the summer compared to what happened when the rest of the student body came back in August and September? Because I remember hearing a lot of reports about the University of Iowa very early on with like a lot of COVID rates and like sort of bet like mis mismanagement and sort of mishandling of the students who tested positive with like students you know, having to like having to wait a long time to get the results back and then being sent to like, not like closets, but sent to like quarantine in really awful conditions. So I'm just sort of wondering, like, you know, what did that look like from an athletic worker's perspective where you all had been on campus and, you know, there weren't that many students around and you were able to sort of be careful without having to worry about students. So sort of what was that like in that transition period to when everyone else came back? Yeah, this, the student subject is, is actually a really good topic you bring up because if you look back in the summer, you know, summer school wasn't a thing. The, the students were deemed, you know, not, it was it was not safe for students to come back because they didn't want for them to contract COVID. However, NCAA comes out and says there's going to be voluntary workouts for all these college athletes and they're all allowed back on campus. And voluntary workouts means it's not voluntary so everyone's going to be back in the summer mm-hmm. and i think that right there kind of set the bar for a lot of the athletes looking at, looking on to the horizon in the fall when all these students came back in the fall they're like well if it's not safe for them now what's changing why why is it why is it all the sun changing and you know i mean just look at the amount of money that's just gonna be burnt if all these students aren't allowed to come back they're gonna do everything they can to you know, have athletes on campus for them to make money and for the students on um, on campus to come back so the university can, you know, collect tuition rates. And I think that that, that the, the bar was definitely set in the summer um, when students weren't allowed and college athletes were, that's for sure. Yeah, and one of the, like, the thing you, one of the things you keep, like, kind of returning to, I think, is this, like, question of consent that I kind of want to mm-hmm. get get back to a little bit. Because, like, I cannot tell you, Jordan, how many times we have heard, like, everyone just wants to play. Everyone is willing to engage with these risks. Everyone's willing to take these on because they want to 
to play. Do you think that that argument has any legitimacy? And this is like knowing that you said that you really do want to play. Like, can you walk us through some of the nuance there? Like what's going through your head and what's going through the heads of like people you're talking to in terms of this like voluntary versus involuntary, like the question of consent in this context? Yeah, I think it definitely defers on, you know, the people I've talking to. But I mean, like I said, there was a strong majority of, you know, questioning the the unknowns about the virus and you're you know, returning to play basketball during a global pandemic. I think that was the first thing that um a lot of the athletes they're just questioning the unknowns and no one knew anything. And I feel like it's still kind of the same thing about the virus. They're, we're allowed to go play and someone contracts a virus. We just kind of treat it like a flu almost. And you sit out for you know, the funny thing is now that I'm bringing this up, I forgot totally about this topic of, you know, the differences between the protocols amongst the conferences as well, because mm-hmm. the Big Ten has a 17 day period where you have to sit out and you have to get your heart checked out. And I, I went through it. Then when I when I contracted COVID this summer, you know, have to get your ch- heart checked out, get the exams done, and then you have to sit out for 17 days and uh, wait, wait till return to play. And, you know, one, one of my friends on Purdue that was the one that tested positive doing the same thing and but it's totally different in the acc it's different waiting times different how many times you how how much days mm-hmm. you have to sit out um so i i i think that the fact that that right there shows that it's not consistent it shows how much unknown there still is and mm-hmm. i think that's still the epicenter of a lot of college athletes you know it's it's voluntary that we're playing right now but at the end of the day it's it's not voluntary in college sports that's voluntary is a made-up word and it always will be um by the ncaa absolutely so so well said and you know something that you've talked about is sort of the, the role of communication whether it's communicating with other athletes but but also you mentioned working with Ramoge huma and the rcpa and so could you sort of walk us through how you got in touch with them and sort of how you got involved with them because we're always sort of curious, sort of at what point do athletes sort of make the leap um, to kind of get more involved in sort of athlete activism? Yeah, Ramogi, uh, my brother, Zach, he played at Wisconsin. It was under the Final Four team in, oh, shoot, I can't remember the year, but it was 2020, 20, I would have to look back, 2013, 2014, around there. And he was actually, when all the Northwestern players, football players, started unionizing way back then, Ramogi, um, Rogi actually started back in when he played football and has carried on, you know, battling through a bunch of court cases with the NCA and, um, helping lobbying against them and, um, advocating for college, college athlete rights. And my brother was, um, one of the first people that got in touch with Mogi and the Northwestern football players and kind of built that relationship from there. Um, and my brother, Zach has always been a huge advocate for, excuse me, for these, uh, for these athletes. And when my brother graduated, I, you know, I was still in high school, um, actually just getting started in high school. So I was start, starting to realize more and more about what he was doing off the court. Um, and when I got to college, I was, I was growing fascinating by college athlete rights. And I started reading more, started getting more knowledge of it. And finally, you know, about year, year, about yeah, six, six months or a year ago is when, brother kind of I guess passed the torch to me and um 
get, got me in touch with Ramogi and Ramogi kind of just started giving me more, even more knowledgeable about con- concepts of college athletes and um, how much the NCAA has done damage to these athletes throughout the decades. And um, he's been instrumental on, you know, many of the changes that have, has occurred in the NCAA. And that's why it makes me so happy that I've gotten in touch with him because he's on the forefront of pretty much blowing up the whole NCA in, in the next couple of months, I feel like. Totally. Uh, that's, that's amazing stuff. And, you know, we, we talked in an earlier episode uh, to King Coulter about uh, that Northwestern experience. Um, so folks who are interested should, should definitely check that out because you're, you're really painting a picture of sort of the, the long lasting impact of that drive that they made at Northwestern. Um, and the fact that it's still hopefully like, even though years have passed um, and of course, like unionization is ultimately what I really hope for, for all of you college athletes. Um, but like the impact of that movement are really still being felt. Um, that's amazing. And across hear. sports too. And across sports. Absolutely. And in fact, what, what's fast, one of the things that's fascinating to me, actually, I want to just say is like, I'm, we're hearing so many echoes in your experience, Jordan, from what we heard from the football players, right? Like mm-hmm. there's this way these sports are treated as kind of so discreet, right? Their own thing. But really like, this is a common experience, especially among revenue sport athletes. Um, you're really going through the same exact sorts of things. And and what's fascinating to me, and you're telling this, like, for instance, you're saying the same thing that we heard from Otito Obonia um, at UCLA, a football player at UCLA, a terrific athlete um, who, who we talked to in an earlier episode. Like, like him, you're plugged in, right? It's not just like, you're not just talking about your own experience. You're plugged into all of these other athletes and you're having really similar conversations about questions like consent and everything else. And these are not the conversations that are showing up in the mainstream media, right? Like we, we hear all the time, athletes want to play, athletes want to play. Of course you want to play. That's why you're college athletes because of everything that you've invested and sacrificed to get to this point. And for most of you, the desire to get beyond this point, right? I mean, of course you want to play. Why would you have given everything and then just want to throw in the towel at this stage? That makes no sense. No one would assume that. But that doesn't mean that it's not a more complicated question, that there aren't broader structural factors that inform how you play, right? Or or what is how you can even think through or make a choice about what is or isn't safe for you. And this issue of, I mean, every player tells us the same thing. Like coaches have the power on your teams. They get to determine who plays. And since you aren't actually paid right now, like if you were all paid right now, it wouldn't actually matter if the coaches played. It would matter and it wouldn't matter, right? Like we know in the NBA, if it was your free agent year, yeah, you'd want to play, right? You got to put up big numbers in that walk year so you can get a new contract. But if it's year one of a five-year deal, in the NBA, does it matter that much if your coach plays you? You're getting paid either way, right? So the coach can't hold that over you. But in a situation where you're literally just in an internship with the NCAA, the point of the internship is to show what you can do. If you have an internship where you're just getting coffee and you're not like, you know, if it's an internship at the New Yorker and you're just getting coffee, but you don't get to write any articles or do any research, it's a pretty useless internship. You don't have anything to show for it. And it's the same thing for you guys. Like if you, if you don't get to play, if you're paste it to the bench. What's the point of any of this? Right. And then your chance is gone. So, you know, I just think it's like, we, we have to keep hammering this home because if you read fan message boards, if you read the mainstream media, I mean, you just hear it over and over again, this idea that you have this choice, you've opted into this season and it's a big lie because it can never be simplified like that. 
But actually, I want to step back now from this season, even though it all connects, but I want to talk more broadly about your experience of college sport and the system itself. And you've been getting at it, of course, but I mean, you've been at Iowa for a long time. You've seen a lot of things. So given what you've been through and our concern with the issue, I actually really want to pick up on the question of injury specifically, because you have played one entire season with plantar fasciitis and others with such serious hip injuries that you actually had to have multiple hip surgeries, which for anyone that knows, right, is about as big a deal as it gets for any person in terms of a surgical intervention, let alone an athlete. Could you perhaps give us a sense of how difficult that actually is, that those experiences with injury are, and what fans may not understand about the physical and psychological rigors of athletic labor? In other words, I know that athletes are supposed to be macho. You're supposed to play through the pain. You're supposed to sacrifice for the team. But if we're being real about it, and I think that's essential to demystify the labor that goes into athletic work, I want to know what has it felt like to suffer, suffer so much physical harm in the course of your supposed play? I've been through you know, quite the battles these last four to five years, um, you know, playing you know, we started, and it's it's funny looking back. My freshman year is our 18 game conference schedule, and now it's up to 20. So we've added two games since I've been here. So I've been through that transition of you know adding two more games on top of the amount of games we play, and you know my body's been through war pretty much, and um, I've never been hurt in my life until I got to college. So that shows the you know the the aggressiveness and you know the power and strength that is played at this level and the toll it can take on your body um and, you know I, I went through plantar fasciitis my freshman into my sophomore year and that was just hell in itself just trying to get through and um you know i, I got a i can't remember the exact words but it was a certain shot that you know was injected into my fascia on the bottom of my foot for and it seemed like 16 or 17 times. And it was just one of the most miserable things I've ever been in. And I don't cry hardly ever. And I was crying on the table because I, I was doing everything I can to be out there and play with my guys the rest of the season. And, uh, wow. you know, I got through that. And then, you know, a year and a half later, I had to go down with my my hips injury, my hip injuries. And, you know, I got the first one done and figured out something wasn't right with my left one. And, you know, I had to get the second one done. And so I've had Two, I had two hip surgeries in a little under a year, and that's a lot of rehab and a lot of a lot of dark places I definitely was in for that time period. And you know, if talking about physical physical injuries that have occurred you know, in my career and a lot of other people's careers throughout college, there's also a lot of mental um, aspects that have you know as well. And I think that's more <laughs> I might even be more important than you know physical injuries because so much that we go through in a season really takes a toll on, on your brain and, you know, trying to comprehend on, you know, if you have a bad game and handling criticism from the outside and, you know, that that's an injury. You, you have to, you have to know how to get through that and, you know, deal with that and um, trying to tune your body to being able to block out that outside noise and that criticism and, and try to step out that dark place that you might be in after a bad game. So I definitely, I could, I can go down the line of many, many games that I felt worse, you know, after, after a game rather than after a surgery, just because how much of a toll that really is. Um, but there definitely is a huge um, controversy going on with, you know, college athletes and injuries that are sustained throughout 
college careers. Um, and it's 100% that needs to be done of, you know, coverage throughout life. And I'm totally on board with that. And the things that we go through for four to five years while we're here, it's, it's not enough. It, they do They do a lot while we're here, but there needs to be a lot that needs to be done after we leave. Yeah. And I mean, I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. I mean, that was really harrowing to, to hear, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, yeah. The thing I want to follow up on, what does it feel like for you? Like, do you feel like fans get it? It's a really weird position that you're in, right? Like you're very young people with this unbelievable fault. Like you're literally, you're, you are, are obviously professional athletes in terms of the requirements placed upon you in terms of the revenue your labor produces and in terms of like just the sheer magnitude and significance of the spectacle you produce right like you produce one of the most popular forms of culture in u.s society like march madness you collectively i'm talking about men's basketball players here um so you're generating this tremendous amount of meaning within u.s popular culture broadly which means that there's a tremendous amount of scrutiny upon you as well right like people care about who you are what you do they think about it they talk about it they make it clear in all kinds of public forums that you can access obviously right um, and actually have to work hard not to pay attention to if that was your choice so that means that you have my my guess would be that you have um, a pretty good window into what it is fans think of you right or think of your experience or imagine about it or all that stuff and it's unfathomable to me to be in your shoes and to think like what it's like, especially given the harm you've gone through. Because I certainly know like in the interviews I did with hockey players and others, like there was certainly a sense for them, like they doing athletic work means going to work. And when you're hurt or you're suffering and you're going to work, it's, it's a really miserable experience. And then to have someone screaming at you <laughs> when you're at work and demanding more of you and having no empathy for your experience, like that really compounded it for those players. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you live that fan dynamic? Especially with something like Twitter, like the hockey players I talked to didn't have Twitter. They weren't like literally interacting with fans on a day-to-day -day basis. So fans, especially at Iowa, they're one of the most passionate and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of great people at the University of Iowa that are fans of the basketball team and all sports at Iowa. A lot of people don't realize, but there's no professional team in Iowa. So Iowa basketball, Iowa football, this is everything to a lot of families and kids out there. Um, so when you sign up and when I signed my letter of intent, I, I realized that my dad played quarterback at Iowa. And, you know, I remember stepping foot on campus the very first day and people were talking about my dad back in the eighties going to the Rose bowl and how much that meant to the, him, to the, to these people growing up. Um, and really a lot of people said it changed their life of, you know, being an Iowa fan and everything they do to dedicate to these teams. So, um, I think from that aspect, it's, it's very, very cool to put on the Iowa Jersey and kind of, wear it to all these passionate people and being inspirations for these younger kids. Um, but there's also a downfall. I mean, there's always a downfall to a lot of things in life. And, um, you know, I'm, I've, I've gone through it the last four to five years and especially just last game, you know, I had a rough game. I was 0 for 9 from three point, um, three point line. And, you know, a lot of people were tweeting at me and saying, you know, why is he still, why is he playing? He's not the same as he used to be after or before the hip surgeries and, you know, dealing with all these criticism that uh, that's occurred. I mean, it's a job you're dealing with. It's criticism if you don't perform well. 
Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's the definition of, or that's in the definition of being a job, but it should be. And the mm-hmm. fact that fact of the matter is, you know, I'm putting my body on the line every game and doing what I can to win, um, while not being compensated and and have to deal with criticism as soon as I get, you know, off the court and look at my phone, there's people saying stuff. And, um, you know, a couple, a couple of years ago, that wasn't a thing, but I think even more now is kind of, uh, bright, brighten the light of, you know, how these college athletes are even more workers just because of the criticism that they face from these fans. Yeah. And to kind of, you know, follow up with this question of fandom, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, to the extent that you feel comfortable, I'm curious kind of to hear more about the, the, the reaction from Iowa fans. Cause I mean, especially the last four years, Iowa has been a pretty conservative place, um, has been pretty noteworthy for, you know, people not wearing masks and things like that. And obviously that's on all of Iowa, but there's been like real strong resistance to mask, you know, to anti-mask mandates and stuff like that. So I guess I'm sort of curious what, uh, Iowa fans reactions have been to your desire to sort of speak out and talk about conditions for athletes and, and things like that. And just There's before you, definitely- I just want to jump in just one second, because I, the other day I had an interaction with Kentucky fans, not the same as mm-hmm. I, I got it's a different relationship, <laughs> but I like, I happened to say something a little bit critical about John Calipari and the fact that he didn't support his, oh my he didn't, he didn't yeah. back his players. He basically threw them under the bus when it came to the fact that they knelt in protest of the Capitol riots. And then although he did kneel with them, he later in comments basically said that the players didn't do it at the right time. And so I just sort of highlighted that <laughs> on Twitter and like, Honestly, you know, I've dealt a lot with like UNC fans, for instance, and I consider UNC fans to be pretty heated about their team. But like that was small time compared to the Kentucky fans. The Kentucky fans absolutely lost their mind about this, even though they appear to be very angry at John Calipari anyway. Like they're not even happy with John Calipari, but certainly like the idea of supporting kneeling players, that was out of bounds. And so I'm, I'm just, I just highlight like underlining Johanna's point. It seems mm-hmm. to me like a Kentucky and Iowa, we're talking about fairly similar kind of political terrain, not exactly the parts of the country most, you know, thrilled about labor activism or even anti-racism or that sort of thing. It's interesting you bring that point out because I, don't, I, I really don't understand why, I mean, we can say that college athletes want to unionize and I hope we all do come together. And I know there's a lot of work being done to be, um, at that point in the in the near future, but I, I just it's hard for me to grasp the idea of why so many people are not backing college athletes. You know, not having the opportunity to speak out and voice their opinions. And like you said, with Coach Calipari, a guy that's making outrageous amounts of money a year um, off the backs of these players, and the players are not making anything. It's, it's just it just blows my mind that people are just not under they're totally seeing the total the big picture of it all and how these athletes are really not asking for a whole lot. We're asking for the same um, rights and protections that every other student has on campus, name, image, or likeness. That shouldn't even be a discussion. And I've, I've sat on the other side of the argument back in high school. I remember I wrote a paper about why college players shouldn't be paid. And now I've learned of all these um, nuances that have occurred in the system, not realize how broken it is and how corrupt it is. Um, and I, I just, it's, it's, it's just frustrating because people just don't, they don't want to hear um, the other side of the argument and they don't want to understand, you know, what, what's the, what's the downfall of it and why, why should it matter to, you know, 
Jimmy Smith's life and the state of the, the, with his family in the state of Iowa that I deserve to have, you know, make money off my name. I, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And like you have, I think really powered home, um, the fact that like this, what you're experiencing sounds an awful lot like a job, right? And like, what do many jobs um, come with, especially jobs that like can afford to pay someone like Coach Calipari millions and millions of dollars? They tend to come with some sort of health care at some level, right? And given what you've been through, which, which to be honest, sounds like frightening. I can only imagine getting shots in like the bottom of my foot. Um, I, I just can't even imagine um, that. Can you speak to your opinions on the NCAA and university policy in general around healthcare and the fact that there is no long-term um, healthcare coverage of players in a country with prohibitively expensive health insurance costs, especially when you sort of compound not only all the risks uh, like on the court that you've mentioned, but now the added risk of COVID and the long-term effects that may um, um, may be experienced for years to come? Absolutely. I mean, COVID just, like I said earlier in our discussion, that is just widen the view of, you know, the, the crazy stuff that happens with college athletes with the NCA. I mean, I always, I always think about the Maryland football player that died from a heat stroke um, yeah. a few years back and, the NCAA did not want to do any investigation on it. They just gave it to the Maryland University and let them handle it. Um, and they pretty much said it themselves. Like, why is the NCAA not stepping up and being the leader like they always will uh, or always have tried to be for, you know, college athletes? But when name image likeness becomes a thing, they're totally the leaders against that and they want to do whatever they can to, you know, not make that happen. It's, it's such a double standard from the NCA and um, the healthcare of the whole entire idea. Um, I mean, concussions and football players, I mean, that's there, how many football players are sustaining concussions in college football. And um, many of them might have, you know, several and they might not play football the rest of their lives because of it. Um, And they have, you know, downfalls of their health because of injuries they sustain in college why is that not covered by colleges and universities throughout the throughout the nation it it, it should and i don't know why that's even a discussion if it's the injuries you know obtained in college yeah absolutely and you to sort of continue um you know this discussion also you know you've been talking about um your interest and and real desire for college athletic workers to be paid and for their exploitation to end, which without a doubt is something that we completely applaud and support literally no questions asked um and you've also mentioned how you've been following the various bills that have been put forth both in Congress and in Iowa um and talking with senators. And so we we really want to hear, you know, to what extent do you think NIL is enough? And sort of what else, what do you think about sort of other bills that are coming forth? I am fully in support of the um, Senator Booker's bill. I can't remember the Senate, the, but um, the other senators, he's blanking right now that he wrote, that he wrote the bill with. But their their federal bill that they have um, coming into Congress in the next couple of months. Um, I, I've heard from Ramogi that it'll probably take a couple months just because of, you know, Biden administration wanting to focus more on COVID um, aspects um, 
for now, but um, this the support it, the stars kind of aligned for all this to happen really with um, Camila Harris being the vice president and she's being one of the most outspoken college athlete advocates and supporters um, might might be in the entire Senate chamber to be honest um, and Senator Booker you know playing college um, sports in the past there's there's just so so much support that um, for this bill and the bill that is written by Senator Booker with the helps of Ramogi I think covers so much and. Um, I'm so proud of, you know, the work from Mogi has done with Senator Booker and the other centers that um, helped write the bill. And um, the same thing has happened with the, you know, when we met with Senator Bolden, who was an Iowa senator, uh, we, we, there is a couple, they wanted to put the money in the trust funds and um, athletes not um, being able to touch that money until after they graduated. And um, they wanted, the other thing we uh, criticized was the effective date to being pushed back to 2022. And we actually voiced our opinions on that as players and Ramogi did as well. And we actually got the trust fund taken out as well as the effective date put to July 1st, if, when it, if, and when it's voted on this upcoming session. So we were really excited about that as well, because that will put a ton of pressure on the NCA to, you know, do something because they keep delaying and delaying the name image likeness. So it seems like just, what is it? Around October, they said they made a public statement um, trying to please the public about how they were going to work on the name image likeness. They made a committee about it, and they're going to do everything they can to make sure it's going to happen. They delayed the vote, delayed the vote, delayed the vote. And now the work we've done, um, Ramogi has done, and the NCPA, NCPA has done has helped you know push these bills to the states. And now the states is putting so much pressure on the NCA and Hopefully, um, the icing on the cake will be when the federal bill is voted on. And I have a, I mean, the stars really aligned for everything to happen for that to be passed. Absolutely. Just in time for you not to get to take advantage of it, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, that's okay with me. When I first started, you know, a lot of people will say that, um, why, why did you do all this work to, you know, not really gain anything from it? And I am, I'm getting so much from it, so much knowledge and so much experience from, you know, just going through this process of helping future generational athletes. And, um, I know this will be a huge stepping stone for a lot of people moving forward because I, I do feel like the end in sight in the next couple months, I think there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen, um, that aren't made um, out in the public in the next, you know, next couple of weeks with bills being more brought out from a bunch of states and, um, but I'm, I'm just happy the work that we've done and able to, you know, th- just even the meeting with the Senator from Iowa, him able to just take those two things out that we wanted to take out just shows, you know, how much that work has really, you know, fulfilled us and helping, you know, future generational athletes. It's wonderful that you kind of bring us here because one of the questions that I have is that like, you've been one of the most outspoken college basketball players, I'd argue most outspoken um, college athletes in general that we've sort of seen come around uh, over the past few months and few years um, when it comes to labor and working conditions, uh, NIL, and sort of the general hypocrisy uh, of the NCAA. Not only are you active on Twitter, but you're also um, talking about these issues on The Standpoint, which is your podcast, which we mentioned off the top, and we will link in the show notes. And you talk about labor and exploitation and harm in very explicit terms. I want to ask, what, if we can, like, can we ask you why you feel so 
um, comfortable speaking out against um, exploitation in the NCAA? And maybe as a follow-up, like, do you to some degree feel sort of compelled um, uh, to speak out against uh, the NCAA regarding these issues? It's funny you you bring that up because, you know, me being my fifth year here, it's almost like I'm like the dad of all these athletes. And, you know, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's, it's weird to say, but it just feels like I've experienced a lot of things with, you know, help write, you know, help forming these bills in um, the state of Iowa, then, you know, experiencing, you know, all the way back. I'm not sure how many people listen to the podcast about me my goldfish being taken from me at the NCA tournament because it wasn't an endorsed brand by the NCA and oh. during a press conference. And it's just like simple things like that. I've, I've realized the, the inconsistencies of the NCA and I've grown, um, I've grown a lot of my knowledge of, you know, the rights of college athletes. And I feel like that's kind of helped me build a foundation for myself to speak out against it and, um, you know, form, uh, kind of a, you know, I've brought the players, a bunch of players together from the Big Ten even recently in the past couple of months. And we formed a group chat and we're starting to talk about all these issues and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And, um, you know, I feel like a lot of people are just kind of looking up to me for, you know, advice about college athletes, what to do, especially during this uncertain time. And uh, for myself, and it's kind of, I've always kind of thought of myself as a leader on the basketball floor, but um, I've, I've kind of used my basketball experience to translate into the real world um, about about real life and, you know, the experiences that, you know, hardships I've dealt with injuries, just translating into just working hard on the off court as well. And with, you know, just these um, a lot of these facets of life that, you know, I've been you know, blessed. I've been I've been very, very blessed to have been put in the opportunity to play basketball at Iowa. You know, I <laughs> I was born in Iowa City. The, the, the campus is in Iowa City. I grew up in Marion, which is 25, 30 minutes away. And, you know, I, I my, my brothers all played Division One basketball and uh, I'm the last one of all of us. And, you know, I just felt like there's just, like I said, a lot of experiences that I've built up and kind of led me to this point of, you know, kind of being the leader of, 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 of it all and of kind of just speaking out about a lot of things. Absolutely. And and so one thing that you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on is you were saying how sort of like throughout this experience, you've really grown in terms of your knowledge and your understanding of how the NCAA works and inconsistencies and how you all are being exploited. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, what do you think, how do I say, what do you think schools could be doing to sort of like better prepare athletes to be thinking the way you are, the way you and some others are in terms of thinking critically about your labor conditions, about what your schools are offering and doing and sort of making money off for you and the NCAA. So sort of like what sorts of things could your school and maybe your programmer do so that athletes like nationwide could just be more aware of their conditions of being exploited and things like that? I honestly don't think that will ever happen with universities and schools mm -hmm. trying to, I'm trying to I'm trying to say this as politely as possible for the mm -hmm. universities across the country but I just don't think that will ever happen because there's yeah. so much that is run by by money and then yeah. CA is run by money and they will never do anything to take away the amount of money they're making you know should we have an NCA tournament this year Probably not based off how everything's going right now, but you for sure bet your bottom dollar that they're going to have it because it's going to fund the rest of the sports throughout the entire division 
um, the entire NCA because uh, amount of money that it's generated just from that one tournament. And they didn't have it last year, so they they definitely have to need to have it this year, or it's, this NCA is not going to be a thing anymore. And I think the schools, a lot of these schools, are kind of realizing a lot of these college athletes are starting to realize this and um you know a lot of the administrators and uh coaches are the ones making all the all the money and the millions of dollars off these athletes and what's going to happen when these athletes are going to start making money the schools are going to start losing money and it's just giving me a downfall effect um so i think the schools are are doing what they can to keep surviving i guess i could say in the nicest way possible and um, granted, there's a lot of great people. I'm not taking away the fact there's a lot of great people in the athletic departments and administrators throughout the universities. But um, the fact of the matter is, like I said, everything's run by money. And for us to make money, it's for them to lose money. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I really, I really appreciate your honesty about it. And it's just sort of something that I think all three of us are really thinking about in terms of when we teach classes and we all have like athletic workers in our classes in terms of like, what do we as professors sort of need to be doing to, to provide the foundation, the the foundational knowledge for you all to be able to ask these questions. And as we've discussed on other episodes, un- unfortunately, academia is not always sort of welcome to professors sort of teaching, cr- teaching students critically about sport for lots of reasons. A lot of academics don't see that as sort of a worthwhile adventure. So one of the things we're trying to do is really show how necessary and worthwhile and absolutely critical it is. But, but I, I definitely agree in terms of when it comes to sort of the bottom dollar, because universities and NCAA, they're, they're all run on, you know, they're all capitalist uh, institutions that are run on money and money matters more than bodies and everything else. So I, you know, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Jordan, you, you mentioned like you, you've spoken several times about how Iowa, it doesn't have a professional sports team. Um, and that in some ways that you are, um, you are part of the, the professional sport or the, the biggest draw, um, in, in Iowa. I'm curious with your sort of I, I would call it a critical take on the NCAA and sports with your sort of public critical take. Have you received any backlash or negative reactions from fans, from teammates, from administrators or, or anyone? Oh, 100%. There's been, you know, many people that have tweeted at me about, you know, focusing on, I know, I, I stay you, in your lane. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, something we actually just talked about. We just recorded uh, our standpoint podcast tonight, and uh, we were talking about you know people tweeting at me and saying like, and I was joking. I was like, yeah, I just need to be a robot, and I can only focus on basketball, and I can't do anything else on the outside world. I shouldn't be knowledgeable about any topics throughout you know life. And I think that's the the point that's gotten out with college athletes because it's only you're only supposed to focus on basketball. You're only supposed to focus on your sport. And if you do your sport wrong, which is a job, but if you do it wrong and it's being critiqued, there's going to be a lot of criticism drawn your way because of it, um, because you're doing something outside um, uh, outside in life. And the, the funny thing is I, I went on a little jokingly crusade about, you know, parking meter maids on my Twitter the other week. And, you know, it was, it was just funny. It was being a, you know, being a joke and, um, just kind of gained some laughter and, and I had a bad game the other night and everyone was tweeting at me and my mentions saying, Oh, you should have been tweeting at about the parking maid, uh, oh. attendance. That's the reason why you weren't focused. You didn't make any shots because of it. I mean, that's just the point we've gotten at with so many people. And, 
um, the backlash because of you speak out about something. Um, obviously, a parking made crusade on <laughs> how how bad some some uh, the parking attendants are about giving tickets at the University of Iowa. But um, me doing a podcast, there's some people doing the same thing. Of if I had a bad game early in the season, they're saying, "Well, you should just focus on basketball and stay in your lane," like you said, and have that shut up and dribble mentality. Um, and I think. I, you know, I, me being me, I'm never going to get to that point because I know there's a lot of work that needs to be done and I'll continue to speak out about the inconsistencies like I keep talking about. That's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to circle back around to, we were talking about compensation before, right? And, and I, I feel like no conversation about compensation in college sport is complete without engaging the issue of education. And that's because education is supposedly your compensation, right? You get these overly generous scholarships, you always are told. Uh, and that's what, that's what compensates you for your hard work, since, of course, other students are paying outrageously high tuition fees. That's a whole other issue. You know, like we could go down a separate path and say, if we could eliminate student debt, if we could make higher education accessible, well, actually, then you'd be paid nothing at all, right? Because then other students would also have access and you wouldn't have to give all this labor in order to have your education paid for, you know? So anyway, that's one other way of looking at it. But the reason I want to drill down on it is, you know, I'm not particularly interested in probing around issues of academic misconduct and corruption. It happens, but I don't really believe that's the pervasive issue when it comes to this sort of issue, this question of education as compensation and the educational experience of college athletes. What I'd actually rather hear about is your view on how possible it actually is to get the full educational experience as an elite, as an elite athlete. Do you get as much out of your education as non-athlete students do? Do you get as much out of it as you would like to? Zero percent no. Um, it, I have a couple of circumstances where, you know, a couple of my teammates, they wanted to go to med school in the future and they're trying to find classes, but, you know, you can't schedule a class between 1 to 6 p.m. So that eliminates you know, that eliminates a lot of classes and a lot of your class schedule is very restrained because of that. And, um, you know, a couple of my teammates, you know, being in business school and missing a class, some professors aren't lenient of, you know, you making up work, you know, they, your the syllabus is, syllabus says, if you have like a university excuse, you're supposed to, um, you know, give, give a little leeway because of it. Cause you're not, you have to, you're doing something for the university and, um, you're, you're doing a job and so you have should have a little more more free time to get that work done but uh there's a lot of circumstances that i've i haven't personally experienced but i know a couple of my teammates have and a couple teammates or a couple uh, players from other schools that say well listen i'm not able to do this major just because i'm in basketball and you know i'm gonna be gone a lot and i'm gonna be traveling it's gonna be really hard for me to make up class work and come back when we're traveling at 12 o'clock at night and come back at 3 a.m., I have a nine o'clock class. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. That's a lot of work. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that from the outside as well. Granted, we're in a different time period just because a lot of classes are online now. But normally coming back at, we play at eight o'clock in Maryland. We don't get back till two or three in the morning. A lot of times I had class at 930 in the morning. 
that's very hard to do to do that consistent consistently throughout the season and stay on top of your work. I don't care how smart or dedicated you are. That is very tough on your body and tough on your mind. One of the things that we we've sort of uh, been asked several times, uh, like on Twitter and the trolls for us, it's like, okay, you talk a lot of shit about the NCAA. And you constantly harp on the fact that there's no education, there's no labor unions, they, they exploit all these things. And then you don't talk about what are the sort of, how do you have, how do you solve these problems? I'd like to get your take on, it sounds like education is not even in the equation for, for um, several uh, of um, uh, your peers. What could the NCAA do? realistically to make education more of a priority in your view well i at the supreme court case right now the ncaa um, i don't know if you guys are too familiar with it or not but there's a court case right now at the supreme court that are ta- that they're taking from the ncaa appealing it they're trying to the educational base purchases that um, college athletes should be allowed to get if anything's toward if, that, if anything's tethered tethered towards education the university should be paid for it or, or the, they should pay for it and the NCA is doing everything they can to not let that happen and they they literally went to the supreme court to not let these college athletes get more money for educational purposes like how re, how ridiculous is yeah. that like, it doesn't make any sense if if a, if a college student if a college athlete needs a computer the university should be able to provide for that. Like you're doing so much uncompensated work, and the NCA is willing to even go a leap uh, above that and say no. That, that's extra. That's extra. Uh, that's an extra. I don't. I can't find. That. I can't think of the word. But um, you shouldn't. They shouldn't. You shouldn't be allowed. To, you shouldn't be allowed to get that. that. That's not fair. I'm like, well, that doesn't make much sense. If you're all for a college athlete, I don't. I don't even say student athletes anymore. It's college athletes, students. The student athlete term is a made up term. I mean, Jay Bill has said it on our our, our podcast, and it's funny because I, I always said the same thing. And so it was kind of like a whoa moment when he said it. But uh, he college athletes, student athletes, you're there to play college sports if you're a college athlete. Students isn't tethered to uh, being there to play any sort of sport. Your first priority when you get on campus is to play the sport you're designed to play and to make money for the university. The student the student aspects put on put on the back burner of it, and um, I think that Supreme Court case kind of just shows where the NCA lies with their opinion on the whole thing. Totally, we uh, actually like we actually prefer campus athletic worker. On this, on this <laughs> I like that one better, actually. <laughs> um, so. On this topic, because I, I like Derek's question, that, that the question of like what what can be done about it, right? And and you've pointed to, I mean, like you very generously, Jordan, like you you gave you threw them a bone, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> could you just could you just pay for our like our pencils, perhaps? <laughs> Which uh, you know I, I appreciate. That's a very attainable goal for the NCAA. Um, Victoria Jackson, uh, our, our friend and colleague at Arizona State University, um, she's proposed what I think is one one of the most sort of uh, brilliant workarounds with respect to education, which is this idea of, she's called it lifetime scholarships, right? This idea that um, basically, because I mean, one thing we didn't even mention so far, but I certainly see that Duke. It's like one of the things that Duke students get for the insane $70,000 tuition, they get to go abroad in the summer 
right? Like there's all these programs they don't pay additionally for. They have all these opportunities, this school abroad, like special programs, this and that. Um, And they're exciting opportunities and they're networking opportunities. Like they're they're actually ways in which students can even monetize, frankly, their education. That's what my first priority is. But I mean, that's something that a lot of students want to get out of it. And you're denied that, even though we're always told that you're like part of a brotherhood, so to speak, right? And like making valuable connections and blah, blah, blah. Um, But anyway, what what I want to come back to is I'm curious whether like the idea of, from the standpoint of you as an athlete, because like in the abstract, as like maybe an academic thinking through this problem, saying, look, you give your years of labor to the university, you can't necessarily get a proper education at the same time because it's actually a full-time job. And so if you have a full-time job, you can't get the best possible education alongside it, uh, especially when it's such a physically taxing and emotionally draining job. But is it appealing the idea that then you could have, let's say, four more years where you could go back to the University of Iowa at any time and like access those things um, when you're not actually giving labor to the university? Is the idea of lifetime scholarships appealing? I do like that idea. I think if then Zia wants to continue along the line of, you know, college athletes being there for academics as well, that they should go to that extent of doing that and having that opportunity for these college athletes to come back and, you know, obtain that in whatever way or shape form they design. It, it's just, and I always, I always keep saying the words are consistent and that should be the definition of, of the NCA at some point, but it's inconsistent of you know what their views are on college athletes and how's it how are they tying everything to education but they're not willing to you know work on something as simple as that and I think that's a simple it's a pretty simple plan in, in my opinion and um, something that shouldn't be that hard to come up with and yet there there are so many the, the moment you get NCAA leadership in the room and start talking about these things you start to hear all this complexity come out and really what you're what it sounds like you're you're talking about is just simplicity is is just make things much more simple than they really are this doesn't have to be a debate about who gets paid what what happens to this program and that program but keep things simple and consistent yeah, one hundred percent. And you know, I, I I've talked about this with Jay Billis even off the podcast, and he was talking about how a lot of these athletes that are in college right now, this is the most valuable time of their lives, and mm-hmm. the opportunity for them to even make money. This is the prime peak, pretty much, for a lot of these these people on campuses. And the fact the fact of the matter is, we're denied that opportunity to even make value of what our most valuable years are is just incredible incredibly inconsistent and it's not fair and it's not it's not right it's not just yeah i i completely agree and and all solidarity to you and others who are working um to to sort of make change and demand change and force change and and my final question um kind of surrounds or I, I would like you to predict or at least speculate a little bit going forward. So like over the past year, COVID-19 happened, the summer of sort of social upheaval where people and, and athletes in almost all sports really sort of mobilized, not started, really mobilized around issues of racial justice and social justice and labor conditions uh, more generally. I'd like to um, ask you to speculate about where you see this going forward in the context of collegiate athletics. We saw We Are United and, and the, 
um, pack, uh, the, the pack movement and the big 10 movement in the summer. Um, we saw them sort of force the conferences hand in terms of canceling, um, the, the seat, the football seasons. And then they obviously went back, but we saw this like power dynamic and this power play playing out over the summer. And I think that that was one of the, the most powerful labor mobilizations we've seen since perhaps the Northwestern um, move in 2015. So I'm curious to get, if you were to speculate into the future a little bit, do you think that the events of 2020 and now I guess into 2021 as well have drastically shifted the perspective of college athletes as it sort of relates to democratizing working conditions and labor conditions more generally? In other words, do you foresee more powerful labor action as a possibility in the near future? Oh, 100%. And I think the every, every, everything has to start with something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the fact of the matter is the football players had to go through that for a bigger, you know, situation to occur. And I believe, you know, obviously starting with those bills that are being passed, you know, state by state right now, and then the federal bill with Senator Booker, uh, that's going to be hopefully passed in the near future is going to shape a lot of it's it's I think it's going to be the end of the NCA and how they handle college athletes in my opinion and mm-hmm. I think the the idea of the football players unionizing and um, stating of the problems that were occurring and what they wanted to be accomplished was a huge step forward for you know a lot of the college athletes out there, especially for the guys that kind of were on the line of towing, well, should I speak out? Should I not speak out? Is there going to be repercussions if I do speak out? I think that showed right there that how much power is in the college athletes' hands and not in the you know universities or the NCAA or even the coaches' hands. It's the players that have all the power. And I think if we continue to go down that line and um, continue organizing that in the next couple months, there's going to be a large player association, which, you know, I, something I've, I've been trying to work on as well with Ramogi and we're trying to do everything we can to, you know, make sure that, you know, the players interests are the ones that should be the first priority because they're the ones that are making all the money. They're the ones that are doing the labor and the people that are pretty much watching are getting all the entertainment and, um, the guys that are on the, on the TV and doing doing the labor aren't, aren't doing aren't getting anything. Well, Jordan, thank you so so much for coming on and joining us tonight. Especially since you said you already recorded an episode of your own <laughs> podcast tonight. Busy tonight, busy, <laughs> busy, busy on a Sunday night. So just thank you so much. Um, we are just so impressed with sort of how much you're speaking out and how informed and how knowledgeable you are about this stuff. We can't wait to sort of see what happens. Um, and just thank you again so very much. Appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Yeah.